Hey guys, let me begin this morning, if I may, with a question. It's a simple one. What is it that you're looking for? That's it, simple question, right? I mean, condensed down, it's only four words, simple. Let me repeat it again. What are you looking for? I guess it's five. You see, for me, there's a profound irony involved here. It seems to be the simplest of questions, but as I thought about that question this week and trying to come up with an answer for myself, it was kind of like peeling back an onion. Every time I thought I had the answer to the question, it just seemed to beckon me deeper into self-reflection and self-appraisal. If I can, let me give you another. I'm a pastor, right? This is church. So, so here's one for you this morning. What do you want from God? Simple question. The answer? Well, it's time to start peeling the onion again, right? Because if I, if I answer that question honestly, at least based on my prayers, it's, it's a whole lot of things. And the more I reflect on it, a lot of that starts to seem silly or trite or self-serving, and so I start peeling. Welcome to our new series, one that I am super excited about. You see, I think you're here this morning. I think we come to church, we come to God because we're looking for answers. I mean, who doesn't, right? We, we have lots of good and profound and hard questions. But here's what I've discovered, and I can't believe I've never seen this before. I've been in ministry a long time. I've spent lots of time every week in the scriptures, and most of the time I'm looking for answers so I can share them with all of you because, well, you ask really good questions. But man, I really missed out on something. While we come to God looking for answers, like he's the old shell answer man, if you remember that, we come to church, we come to the Bible, we're looking for answers. There's something there you're much more likely to find in the scriptures, in the words of Jesus as you search for your answers. You know what it is? It's more questions. You see, Jesus, it turns out, as one author I read this week put it, is not the ultimate answer man. He's more like the great questioner. Are you ready to get blown away? This is so cool. In the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, ministry, his death, and his resurrection, you know them as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus asks many more questions than anybody asks him. In the four gospels, Jesus asks 307 different questions. Now, by contrast, He's only asked 183 questions. So if you think you have a lot of questions for Jesus, you should hold on because he's got a lot more for you. More striking than that, Jesus directly answers very few of the 183 questions he's asked. Of the 183, anybody want to take a guess how many of those questions Jesus directly answers? Anyone? You can type it in in the comments if you're watching online. Well, at least according to two published studies, Jesus answers three. Three of the 183 questions he's asked, which is, I mean, it's hard to get my head around that, right? I, I, I like you, I come looking for answers. That's what I thought Jesus was here for. I mean, that's his role, isn't it? That's his job. That's what I thought was foundational in our relationship. I'm the questioner. He provides the answers. But it turns out, I was wrong. I mean, think about it the next time you pray. What so often is the drumbeat of our prayers? 
Jesus, would you? Jesus, could you? Jesus, will you? Jesus, why would? Jesus, how is it that? And we sit then waiting for answers, almost, if we're honest, demanding them, when it turns out perhaps we should have been listening for a question. You know why? Because Jesus is over 60 times more likely to give you a question than an answer. I mean, it's telling, is it not, that the first words Jesus speaks in the gospel are in the form of a question. According to Luke, Mary and Joseph lose track of their 12-year-old son Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem, and they're frantic as any other parent would with worry, and when they finally track Jesus down, they find him sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Well, of course, Mary and Joseph, his parents, see him, and they're astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. What do they do? They ask Jesus, just like you and I do, a perfectly legitimate question, one any mother or father would. How does Jesus respond to them? Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now let's fast forward to the under end of Jesus' life, according to Mark and Matthew. Jesus' last earthly utterances while on the cross. Another question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, it doesn't end there. Post-resurrection, some of you know the story. Jesus has breakfast with the disciples on the beach. And as you can imagine, this is post-resurrection. They are chock full of questions. But Jesus keeps uttering a familiar one back. The third time in a row, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And of course, all of this leads me to, well, it leads me to ask another question. Why? Why would he do that? I mean, he has all the answers. He has what it is that we're looking for, at least I, I think. Why won't he just give me the answer? Well, here's what we know. Good questions, well, they do a few things. They elicit information. We know that. Good questions can inspire people to discover something new, to unearth new knowledge. Good questions can be used to persuade you, right? That's, what the, uh, that's why the best teachers ask lots of really good questions. One author put it this way. Easy answers can give us a sense of finality. By entertaining questions, God has a chance to change us. Answers can be offered as a conclusion, but questions are an invitation to further reflection. For the most part, answers close and questions open. It is telling that the word question contains the word quest. That is, a question sends you on a journey and often in search of something pretty valuable. And then, finally, and maybe most importantly, there's this. Questions? Questions forge intimacy. That's why sometimes when you leave a conversation where many questions have been exchanged, you leave feeling noticeably connected to the person to whom you were speaking. You see, when we hear Jesus asking us all of these hundreds of questions, we need to not imagine an interrogation, but more like the questions you'd exchange over coffee with a good friend. We feel cared for because of the interest of the other. See, few of us have ever left a college lecture hall feeling loved, 
But questions well asked build closeness, and I think a lot of times Jesus is using them for that reason, so that in answering them, we might come to know ourselves and one another better, deeper, more intimately. And so with that in mind, and with a nod to again the disturbing cultural events of yet again this week, let's begin. Because I think this question applies to us both individually and corporately. Here it is. Do you want to get well? Do you? See, that wasn't an uncommon question of Jesus' regarding healing. Another translation, the old King James, captures this question even, even better. Wilt thou be made whole? Now, that might seem like a stupid question to you, right? Do I want to get well? Do I want to be made whole? Of course I do. Well, if you think it seems strange now, it's going to seem even more ridiculous when I introduce you to the circumstances of this seemingly rhetorical yet profound question. John records the context for us this way. Jesus went up to Jerusalem from one of the Jewish festivals. Now, he doesn't, John doesn't tell us which one, but the historical detail he includes here shows us that this is not a parable or a narrative. It's an actual happening. He goes on, Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. So John, again, giving lots of detail about the event, when he says, for example, it's by the Sheep Gate, what he's indicating is that it's by one of the gates of the temple in Jerusalem, specifically by the gate through which they would lead sheep in for sacrifice. In fact, you can Google this at home, archaeologists have unearthed this specific place, this pool. You can see the actual pictures where this took place. And here it is. It's right here, outside of the temple, near the sheep gate, by this pool of water. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind and the lame and the paralyzed. And the reason they laid there was that there was a rumor in town, a superstition that had built up over time. You know, kind of like these silly things that come along on Facebook or social media that if, if you post this or send it to 10 people, you receive a blessing. Well, this is the first century version of that. The superstition was that every once in a while, this pool that was there, which was fed by a reservoir, every once in a while, the water would suddenly and inexplicably begin to bubble up. Now, what archaeologists have discovered is that there was likely a natural spring there which was causing that. But facts, as we all know, often get trumped by superstition. So it wasn't a spring. What people began to believe was that it was angels, which every once in a while would stir the waters up. And, and when it happened, and who knows how often it happened, we don't have the details, but clearly it wasn't regularly. But when it happened, the word on the street was that the first one in the pool would be healed. Now, we read that and kind of just go right by it. But John gives us enough details here that it's worth pausing first. Now, don't rush by this. Guys, this is a horrible first century scene. John says there wasn't just one or two disabled people here, but there was, quote, a great number. And then more detailed, there was a great number of people who were blind and lame and paralyzed. Now, here's the thing. Jesus, this first century rabbi, 
Jesus should have avoided this area of people because then it would have been deemed unclean. Most people would have assumed that these people were suffering because of some sin they had committed or perhaps they were born this way because their parents had committed some sin. But instead of walking by Jesus, well, he walks right in. See, this was the kind of place that most people, when going to the temple, pretended not to see. You didn't want to gaze upon it. It it, it would make you feel bad. Or or because, let's be honest, it it probably didn't even, I know it didn't look good, it probably didn't smell good. You've got dying and decaying, lame and, and disabled people likely piled on top of one another, trying every once in a while to get near this pool for healing. As if it was their only last chance, their only hope, or at least that's what it seemed to be until this one day, Jesus walks in. John goes on. He tells us that one who had been there, an invalid, for 38 years. Second detail. We don't know how, long this, how old this man was, but we know he's been there, likely laying there, for 38 years. 38 years stuck. 38 years with little hope. 38 years relying on some superstition for healing. That's a super interesting detail, right? 38 years. But I can't help but wonder if Jesus picked this one man out of the many for just that symbolic reason, because it was that exact same amount of time, 38 years, that Jesus' people, the Israelites, had wandered in the wilderness, stuck, without hope, from the time God told them to enter the promised land of Canaan until after 38 years, they were ready to accept that as God's gift to them and overcome their fears and, and their foes. It seems 38 years of being stuck, well, 38 years of being stuck is a way of making a man a little less reliant on himself or things and and ready to rely on God. And so when Jesus saw him lying there and, and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you know why this happened to you? He asked him, do you know what you did to deserve this? He asked him, Can I help move you closer to the pool? No, he didn't ask the man any of those questions. Seems to me that those are the ones, given the situation that I would be asking God. But no, instead Jesus asks him this. Do you want to get well? Which, the many times I've read this story, That has always seemed kind of like a silly question to me, a rhetorical one, but this week when I read it, look, I'm just being honest with you now, this week when I read it, for the first time, I could almost feel it internally as an offensive question. Enter the story, right? I've been lying here amidst the the lame and the blind and the disabled, amidst the stench and the cries and the stares and the death for 38 years. For 38 years. And you walk in here I haven't walked in 38 years, and you come in here, and your first question to me, I mean, you see the situation, right? You have the nerve to ask me, do I want to get well? Now remember, this guy does not know who Jesus is, that he's the son of God that's talking to him. He's not thinking about being reverent. He's not thinking about religion, and I can't help but wonder if he looks at him and just wishes he could ball up his fist. What the heck kind of seemingly stupid, uncaring, insensitive question is that? Do you want to get well? 
And so, now let me, let him ask you a question. You. In the midst of whatever it is, I don't know all of your stories and your circumstances. I don't know the situation. I don't know your pains, your losses, your disappointments, your discouragements. I don't know your bad prognosis, your bad marriage, your bad finances, your bad circumstances. All the things that seem so overwhelming to you that have piled up all around you, in the midst of all of those things, Jesus has a question for you. Do you want to get well? Do you want to be made whole? Do you? And see, the reason that I think Jesus asks this question, and the reason I think it's not rhetorical, is that here's what he knows. Here is what I've seen over over the years now. The truth is that not everybody really, really does. In fact, if I'm just honest with you, I think the truth is often we don't. You know why? Because sometimes getting well, it means things have to change. Sometimes getting well means, well, admitting I was wrong. Sometimes getting well means abandoning an old way or an old habit or an old pattern or an old mindset. Sometimes getting well means that what we used to be identified with and identified by, well, that would need to change. And here's the truth. It's hard to hear, but it's true. Sometimes it's just easier. Sometimes it just hurts less. Our pride, our our reputations, our lifestyles, our calendars, our pocketbooks, our free time. Sometimes it just hurts less to just stay here and stay sick. And I just love the man's reaction. It's just so much like ours. He makes two mistakes, really. The same ones you and I make over and over again. Check this out. He replies, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool. And when the water starts, and while I'm trying to get in, somebody else goes down ahead of me. First mistake. Yeah, of course I want to get well. But it's not my fault. I mean, it's theirs. I don't have anybody to help me. Everybody's pushing ahead of me. If it were up to me, I'd be healed, but, but it's not. You see, it's not my fault. It's theirs. It's, it's my mother's fault. She was always such a nag and a critic and so condescending, and it's, it's my father's fault. I mean, I've been trying to impress that man for 38 years, and never once has he even said he's proud of me. And yeah, I know that the marriage needs work, but I mean, it's supposed to be 50-50, right? And it's been 90-10 for years, and I mean, he won't even meet me halfway, and every time I mention maybe getting some counseling, and, and I mean, I know I should probably have that conversation with my kid and, and say I'm sorry, but, but it won't do any good. They've never listened or obeyed or respected me, and every time I, I try, they just bring up, friends, this is so good. Listen now to what he said. Listen, listen to what we say. Jesus never asked the man, Why hasn't he gotten in the pool? In fact, Jesus isn't interested because Jesus knows the pool isn't going to do him any good anyway. Jesus did not ask him why he wasn't healed. He simply asks a profound question, which we fight off with all of our our worldly reasoning and excuses, but the question still stands. Do you want to be healed? Do you? Now, Now, here's the second mistake the man makes. We do it all the time, too. 
He, not knowing to whom he speaks, he, he thinks his healing's available in the waters of the pool, the reservoirs of the world, instead of the living water that's right in front of him. In fact, it's even worse, but, uh, but still so common. At this point, he sees Jesus. He's likely looking to Jesus as the way to some other healing water when the truth is that Jesus that stands in front of him is the healing water. He, like many times we, see Jesus as a helper for his way when Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus, friends, Jesus is not a means to help us to another end. Jesus is both the means and the end. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is that man's healing and yours. Now, the man is likely thinking, my salvation is found in the pool. And, and sir, I'll be happy to partner with you to find my salvation. We come to Jesus this way almost exclusively. The reason that a lot of us come to church or have come to God is something's going wrong in our lives, something that we had our hopes on is letting us down, Mr. or Mrs. Right that would make everything right but didn't go right. Uh, we have a problem with our career, uh, something that we thought would make our lives significant and secure isn't happening. And so we go to Jesus and, and we get religious and, and we ask Jesus, Jesus, would you help me into the pool? In Psalm 43, David calls God, my joy and my delight. We almost exclusively pray, oh, Father, please get me my joy. I need this and that, and then I'll have a joyful life. Instead of, you're my joy. It's in you. I don't need to get into the pool. You're my salvation. You're my joy, my healing in my life. And, and so there's the question. Do you want to be healed? Now look, I could stop here and just let you go and wrestle with that one. But I think there's one last truth that we need to wrestle with together. And, and it's this. After his list of excuses and, and seeing Jesus as a means towards some other end, then Jesus says, then Jesus commands this. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. There it is, guys. That is the biblical foundation for the infamous three-point sermon. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Do you want to be healed? Because if you do, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Get up. If you want to be healed, then you have to get up. You have got to get up from the places, the people, the mindsets, the habits, the relationships, the patterns, the old ways, the thinking, the beliefs. You have to stop lying in the same things with the same things, and you have got to get up. Now, hear me. Jesus never invalidated the man's excuses. He never said they weren't true. He knows nobody's helped him and that others cut ahead of him, just like he knows all of ours. And he likely isn't invalidating any of yours either. He knows what your mother said, what your father withheld, what your husband did, where your wife went, how your son spoke. He knows. That's, that's, he knows that's the way you were raised. He knows that's what it is you were taught. He knows that's the way you've always done it. And he doesn't invalidate any of it. He's sympathetic to all of it. But he looks at you and he says, now, get up. 
Don't lay there anymore because there is now a power before you. And if you're a believer this morning, there is a power in you available to you greater than all these things that have been done to you, greater than your circumstances or your situations. And in that power, in his power, not your own, even with all your doubts and disbeliefs, get up. You are not like them anymore. You don't have to act like them anymore. You don't have to believe like that anymore. I've healed your legs. Stop lying around like a cripple. Get out of the bed. Get out of the job. Get out of the relationship, the mindset, the habit, the addiction, the arguing. Get up by his power, not your own. And then once you're up, once you're up, do you know what you have to do? You have to pick up your mat. Now, I don't know what the paralytic was thinking, but if I was him, you know what I'd be thinking? Jesus, I'll get up, but let's just leave my mat here just in case. You see, Jesus, my mat, it's, it's what holds my place in line for the pool. Uh, Jesus, I, I, I've worked for a lot of years to make it up here to this spot. Jesus, it's amazing that I have some strength back in my legs, you know, and, and, and maybe I ought to leave my mat right here, though, just in case things don't work out with this new way. I can just kind of easily go back to this old way, the way I used to live, the way I used to think, where I used to place my hope. I mean, I won't lose anything if, if I leave my mat because then I can have you, and in just in case I can have my mat as a backup. Jesus, let me just, let me leave my mat right here. Because I mean the mat, you see Jesus, the mat is my identity, the mat. See, when people see the mat, they know who I am. My mat, it tells people how they should treat me. It tells people what I deserve, where, where I am here in the social order of things, by the pool. See, the mat tells me and others my place in this world. And so in the fashion of Jesus, let me ask you a question. Do you want to be healed? Because if you do, I have another one for you. What's your mat? What's holding your place in the wrong line? What's, what's giving you your identity? On what does your hope and your faith and your title and your purpose lie? Because if you want to be healed, you're going to have to pick that thing up. You know why? Because you're not going to be needing it anymore where you're going. Do you want to be healed? What's your mat? Friends, those are hard questions. Because to be healed, well, it means to be changed. Some of you know I do a lot of counseling as part of my job. I've been involved in a lot of marriage counseling over the years and a lot of marriages. And the pattern within, within our relationships, it's always quite clear. When I ask folks that come for counseling, if they want their marriages to be healed, I get the same answer up front, which of course is yes. It seems like a stupid question. They would look at me and go, why would I be coming to a pastor's office for marriage counseling if I didn't want my marriage to be healed? It's almost as stupid a question as why would I be lying by this healing pool if I wouldn't want to be healed? But here's the truth. The truth is that when it comes to standing up and picking up your mat, when, when we get to those areas, those deep areas of identity and purpose and where our hope is, and I tell people they're gonna have to get up from the place that they found comfortable and change the way they think, the way they act. When I tell them that they're gonna have to pick up their mat, whatever that is from them, 
It could be the amount of time they spend at work or the demand they put on their spouse. You see, everybody wants to get healed, but it's at this point I discover how few want to get up and pick up their mats. Now, it's usually in, in the counseling process, at this point, things go in one of two directions. Some, in light of what it means to get up and pick up, well, they decide to make the very painful and sacrificial choice to do just that, and when they do, this has not failed yet, friends. Every single time healing, the healing journey begins. I've had others, several others, who at this point, though, when, when press have made a, a different choice. And that's why this question of Jesus is not rhetorical. I've seen it answered the other way. They choose instead to answer in a way I've heard repeated. I can repeat it in my sleep. It comes in the form of, well, no, that's just who I am, or... That's the way I was raised, or, or that's what I believe. And, and ultimately, it comes down to statements like, I don't want to change, and so they're just going to have to accept me the way I am. And so, let me ask you a question. Do you want to be healed? And then finally, Jesus says this, walk. And the context is clear. Not towards the pool. John writes at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And he walks away from the misplaced hopes of the healing waters in the pond and at the temple, or excuse me, at the pond, and he walks towards the temple, towards the place of God where Jesus meets him again a short time later. If you want to be healed, you got to get up. You got to pick up your mat and then listen to the prophet Jeremiah he writes that my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, their own pools of healing, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Don't use or even expect Jesus to help you to broken cisterns instead of ones. Instead, once you're up in his power, once you've taken up your mat of false identities and securities, you walk to him, with him, the spring of living waters. Guys, as true as this is personally in our individual lives, I want to conclude with one last thought. It's true for us corporately well. This week I was writing this. Right in the middle of it, my computer began to blow up with the pictures of what was going on with the ransacking of the Capitol building, a place that I've been to many, many, many times. I really appreciate that building, that place. And as I watched what was happening, something that I never thought would, could take place was even possible in our country. And as I saw, saw us, not now individually, but corporately broken like never before, I kept hearing this question from Jesus echo in my mind for us. Do you want to be healed? The truth is, as a nation, we're going to need to answer that question. And I hope by now you realize it's not rhetorical because it's anything but. It's difficult. Do we want to be healed or do we want to be right? Do we want to be healed or do we want to win? Do we want to be healed or do we want to be separated, divorced, paralyzed, stuck, lost, wandering? Because it seems like this has been going on for longer than 38 years. Now, please, please, this is not a left or a right thing. All of us need to do this. 
We can come up with all of the excuses for why we can't, what the other side has done and what they believe, but if we want to be healed, it has to start with us, the people who claim to follow Jesus. We have to get up out of our camps, out of our silos, out of our echo chambers of thought and rhetoric. We have to stop laying with the same people we've always laid with, and we have to pick up our mats which include things like our political identities and party loyalties, and we have to walk in a new direction. We have to stop walking towards the fake promises of politics and parties, platforms, and politicians. The healing they provide is nothing more than a superstitious cesspool, but we've got to stop walking towards them and start walking towards God. Friends, as followers of Christ, we have to remember We are prone to have a lot of Peter in us. It comes naturally. You remember what happened when the religious leaders came to arrest Jesus? Remember, that was completely unwarranted, unfair, unjust. But here's what Luke writes. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed them. If, I, if I'm just going to be honest with you, this is why when I saw so many Christian flags and Jesus' name being waved around on signs amidst the violence and the chaos, I just kept thinking of Jesus' words. I was studying it as I watched it play out. Do you want to be healed? No more of this. Instead, let me ask you a question. Think about it this week. It's not my question, and it's anything but rhetorical. Do you want to be healed? In your own lives, in your relationships with your kids, your spouse, your neighbors, it applies to your circumstances, your habits, your addictions, your past, your hang-ups and hurts, because I think I know the way. It is finally time together now, individually and corporately, to follow the commands of the one whose name we claim to bear, whose flag we want to fly. Church, listen to me now. If you want to be healed, get up, pick up your mat, and walk.